0: What is going on, everybody? My name is John Solo, and the Christmas season is one of my favorite times of year. I love the music, I love the food and drinks, and of course the gifts are a nice bonus, but I think what I love most about the holiday is that it brings people together. Family, friends, strangers, everyone is nice to everyone on Christmas Day, as long as you don't bring up politics or the specifics of Grandma's will. But there is one guy that you can't help but think of whenever somebody talks about a lack of holiday cheer, and that's Ebenezer Scrooge, the protagonist and anti-hero of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Pretty much everybody who celebrates Christmas knows about this guy and his signature catchphrase, Bah Humbug, but you might be surprised to hear that his story was written with a lot more than just Christmas in mind. Dickens actually wrote it back in 1843 as a cry for help on behalf of England's lower-class citizens, who at that time were living in filthy conditions, doing hard manual labor for no pay, and many were dropping dead from disease and starvation. I know, that's not usually what comes to mind when you think about Christmas, but Dickens combined the concepts in a. way that resonated and still resonates with every person who reads this book. All the more impressive when you find out he wrote it in just six weeks. Yeah, this is one of those times where the story behind the story is just as fascinating to hear, which is why I'm excited that we're covering both in this episode. After we do a relatively short and detailed breakdown of A Christmas Carol and analyze it along the way, of course, we'll cover its dark and depressing origins that fortunately end with a glimmer of hope. And now the messed up origins of A Christmas Carol. So before I start this summary, I feel pretty inclined to address the fact that probably every single person watching this has seen at least one version of the Christmas Carol story. Because not only has the book been obscenely popular since the day it first came out, but there have been numerous reimaginings of it over the years. There's the one with Jim Carrey that I have to say is surprisingly faithful to the book. There's my personal favorite, the classic Scrooge McDuck cartoon featuring Disney's most iconic characters. And who can forget the live action movies? Whether it's the Muppet version or the one from 1984, there are so many classics, And because so many people are already familiar with the main story beats, I'm going to try and keep the summary as concise as possible without rushing it. But also I do want to put some spotlight on the parts that you may have missed out on if you've never actually read the story. Sound good? You ready for me to actually start now? Okay. Our story opens in 1843 on a cold and foggy Christmas Eve in London, and we're introduced to the cranky and shriveled up Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a penny-pinching moneylender whose partner Jacob Marley died seven years ago that very night. While pretty much everyone is out celebrating the Christmas time festivities, Scrooge is working alongside his underpaid and underappreciated clerk, Bob Cratchit, whose only source of heat in the freezing office is a single lump of coal. Scrooge's nephew, Fred, enters the old miser's counting house just oozing with holiday cheer and invites Scrooge to his Christmas dinner that's happening the following night, but Scrooge responds with a bah humbug and says that he'll see him in hell. What a nice way to respond to a dinner invitation, huh? Now I just wish Facebook would incorporate a button that said that every time that somebody from high school invited you to one of their pyramid scheme parties. Well, Fred refuses to let himself be brought down by such a miserable turd and leaves, but before Scrooge can go back to counting his riches and self-loathing silence, two philanthropists walk in to see if he'll donate to charity. As you'd expect, the interaction doesn't go well though. Scrooge tells The men that if the poor want to be taken care of, they can go to prison or the workhouses. And if they die there, it'll be all the better because it'll decrease the surplus population. The philanthropists, now realizing they're talking to a hollowed out husk of a human being who couldn't possibly have a heart, leave the counting house with empty pockets. Then it's time for Cratchit to get on Scrooge's nerves by asking for the massive favor of having Christmas Day off. And after Scrooge berates him for wanting to spend time with his family and friends, he allows it under the condition that he'll be there all the earlier the next day. When Scrooge gets home that night, he is shocked to see the face of his long dead business partner, Jacob Marley, in his door knocker, and that freaks him out quite a bit. He rushes to his room where he intends to eat his flavorless gruel in peace, quiet, and darkness, but the hallucinations that began at the front door won't go away. He once again sees Marley's face in the carvings on his mantelpiece, and suddenly all the bells in his bedroom start to ring. And while it's hard to imagine what that would sound like, because I don't think that most people have even a single bell in their bedroom nowadays, just imagine Imagine if all your electronic devices started beeping at the same time. I think that's the modern equivalent. After the bells go silent, the ghost of Jacob Marley dramatically enters the room and immediately starts berating Scrooge for being a selfish, money-hungry jerk. And Scrooge tries shutting him out by rationalizing the hallucination as the result of some food poisoning. But Marley manages to shut him up by removing the bandage that's around his head so his jaw falls off. Yep. After Scrooge recovers from the horrible sight, Marley says, listen, man, I was the same as you and look what happened to me. I'm chained to these lockboxes and doomed to walk the earth forever. And what makes it worse is that now I can see all the people who needed my help when I was alive and I can't do anything for them. Then he tells the old miser that he'll be visited by three spirits that night who will show him the air of his ways and convert him to being a good man. And before leaving, he orders Scrooge to look out the window. When the old geezer obliges, he's horrified at what he sees. A massive crowd of ghostly beings crying about their failure to live honorable lives and how all they want to do now is help those in need, but can't. This combined with the words of his old partner is enough to convince Scrooge to open his mind up to this experience. Then he falls asleep and we move on to stave two. The next stave starts with Scrooge waking up at midnight and laying in bed until the spirit arrives an hour later. And this one is probably the hardest to describe. Dickens calls it a childlike spirit that emanates wisdom and experience and says it somehow looks both eight and 80 years old at the same time. Also, its head appears to be on fire. So this is the ghost of Christmas past and is a vital part of Scrooge's journey in this story. It takes him back in time to witness his Christmas memories from back when he was a kid, and spoiler alert, they're not all good memories. It turns out Scrooge attended some kind of boarding school growing up and for many Christmases in a row, he was left to spend winter break there all alone while the other boys went back home to their families. Now, just seeing his younger self sitting there all by his lonesome and heartbroken is enough to bring the older Scrooge to tears, which is a very deliberate choice by Dickens. You see, to make a cold-hearted like Scrooge have any empathy for those around him, he first had to experience empathy for himself. Then, after the floodgates have opened, it's time to show him who he should really feel sorry for. They fast forward to a few Christmases later when the younger Scrooge, still at boarding school, is visited by his sister, Fan, who tells him that their father, who is so much nicer than he used to be, is letting him come back home this year. But as happy as this memory may seem, it's tainted by the guilt he feels for how he's treated his sister's only son, Fred, after she died during childbirth. Then the spirit takes Scrooge to a Christmas party at Fezzawig's, the man he used to apprentice for back in the day. and while he's watching in the memory, he fondly remembers how old Fezziwig spared no expense on Christmas to bring joy to those around him and starts to consider that he should be taking notes. The old Crow is also delighted to see his younger self talking and dancing with a pretty young thing named Belle, but that ends up being pretty short-lived because right after that, we see the memory from a few years later where Belle breaks off her engagement with him because he loved money more than her. It's also in this scene that we learn that Scrooge doesn't have this one-dimensional hatred of the outside world like he appears to in Stave 1, but rather he's afraid of it and that he uses his wealth to protect himself from the pain it could cause him. Now the final memory in this nightmarish montage shows Belle with the man she ended up marrying and having kids with instead of Ebenezer, and the two reminisce about her old fiance and how that now that his partner's dead, he's quite alone in the world. At this point, Scrooge reaches his limit for the amount of regret he can handle and forcibly pulls the spirit's cap over its head to put out its light. And while its heavenly glow continues to spill out the bottom and engulf the entire floor, the old man is transported back to his bed. Now it's in stave three that we meet the second spirit, the ghost of Christmas present, which as you're about to see is not only the personification of the holiday, but also meant to represent generosity, goodwill, and celebration. So once again, the scene starts off with Scrooge waking up and waiting around for the spirit to show up. But when he notices it's 15 minutes late, he gets up to look for it himself and finds it in the next room over. This spirit takes the form of a giant man donning elegant green robes, a crown of holly, and sitting on a throne made of a massive Christmas feast. He introduces himself to Scrooge, says that he has over 1,800 brothers, one for each year, and that his lifespan is a single day he tells him to grab onto his robe so he can show him something. Scrooge obliges, and he's suddenly transported to the streets of London on Christmas morning, where everyone is emanating the holiday spirit, whether they're shoveling snow or carrying armfuls of presents to those they love. The second place the spirit takes him is to the home of Bob Cratchit, and this is where Scrooge really gets the guilt laid on him. He sees that their house is dilapidated, the kids are all wearing hand-me-downs and working jobs of their own to support the family, and what may be the worst part, Bob has a crippled son named Tiny Tim, who's just a beast of love and optimism despite his unfortunate circumstances. In fact, Bob even says that they went by the church and Tim made a comment about how he hopes the people who saw him remember the stories about the Lord's healing ways and be thankful that they aren't in the same shoes he is. Then Scrooge asks the spirit if tiny Tim will survive and he's like, nah, if things don't change, Homie's gonna be dead by next Christmas. Afterward, the spirit takes Scrooge to a few different locations where he sees people in much worse situations than his own having a merry old time celebrating Christmas. Then they go to his nephew Fred's party where they're drinking, playing games, and just generally having a blast. It's at this party that Scrooge hears all the women vocalize their disgust with his selfish behavior while his nephew Fred defends him by saying his attitude has the worst impact on himself so he can't help but pity him. That can't feel good. So after making a few more stops, Scrooge asks the spirit about a scary little claw he noticed protruding from under his robe. And the spirit reveals two emaciated and evil looking children that Dickens describes as wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, and miserable. He says, these children, a boy and girl, belong to mankind and are the personification of ignorance and want, respectively. In other words, the girl is meant to represent the absence of the most basic resources required to survive, and the boy represents the more privileged population's conscious decision to ignore those in need. The spirit also warns Scrooge to be wary of these children, which can be interpreted to mean that if the underprivileged population aren't taken care of, the upper-class yuppies could have a revolution on their hands. When Scrooge asks the spirit if anything can be done to help them, to his horror, the spirit responds by parroting his own words back to him. Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Maybe they'll do us all a favor and die so the surplus population can be managed. This is all just a bit too much for Ebenezer to take in, but that doesn't matter. The clock strikes midnight, the ghost of Christmas present dies, and we enter stave four. This scene opens with the final spirit, which looks an awful lot like the Grim Reaper, approaching Scrooge very ominously. He asks the spirit if it's the ghost of Christmas yet to come, but it doesn't answer, something we're gonna have to get used to. Then the spirit takes Scrooge to a few different places. The London Stock Exchange, where a group of busy businessmen who only like business discuss the death of a rich man, and then a dilapidated pawn shop in a London slum, where a group of vagabonds sell some of the dead rich man's possessions. Now Scrooge, who's probably in denial, is just not together that the unpopular but very well-known dead guy is him but he knows that it could be if he doesn't change his behavior. Still, the sight of no one giving a shit about this stranger being dead really hits home for him, so he begs the spirit to show him anyone who feels anything about his death. In response, the spirit takes him to the dinner table of a poor family, where a husband and wife express relief about the death because they owed the rich man money, and by the time their debt transfers, they'll have enough to pay it. So not exactly what Scrooge had in mind, and it gets worse for him. The next scene he's shown takes place in Bob Cratchit's house where the family is struggling to cope with with. the death of Tiny Tim. Bob's wife and each of his kids take turns trying to cheer him up and think about what positives the future might hold. After all, it is Christmas. But still, Tim is dead and they're really bummed about it. And so is Scrooge who can't help but feel guilty. And knowing that his time with the spirit is coming to a close, begs it to reveal the identity of the dead man that nobody cares about. But instead of saying anything, it takes him to a cemetery and dramatically points toward a freshly dug grave and the headstone above it that reads Ebenezer Scrooge. And at this point, our anti-hero has reached his absolute limit. He's shaking with fear and begs the spirit to undo the events of this nightmarish vision and in exchange, he'll honor Christmas from deep within his heart and live by the lessons he was taught. Once again, the spirit doesn't respond, but it's a ghostly hand that Scrooge is clinging to starts to tremble. Then the spirit's robes fall into an empty heap and Scrooge wakes up to find himself clutching his bed curtain. After realizing he's back in his own bed, in his own room, and in his own house, Scrooge is so thankful to have a second chance at life that he spends the rest of the day in a euphoric blur. He starts shouting Merry Christmas at the top of his lungs, makes himself just presentable enough, then runs into the street where he pays the first young lad he meets to deliver a great big Christmas turkey to Bob Cratchit's. And what I really love about this part is how giddy Scrooge gets over the idea that Cratchit will have no idea who sent it to him. Next, the reborn Scrooge runs into one of the philanthropists from earlier, apologizes for being so rude, then promises to make some massive donations to charity. After this, he runs on over to his nephew Fred's Christmas gathering, where, to the shock of all the guests, he is the life of the party. And then we get to the next day, December 26th. Ebenezer gets to the office early to be sure that he beats Cratchit there, then assumes his typical grumpy demeanor. And when Cratchit makes the mistake of showing up 18 and a half minutes late, Scrooge starts to scold him. He says that he absolutely will not tolerate this kind of behavior anymore and then gives him a raise and promises to help his struggling family. They had us in the first half, I'm not gonna lie. Now you would think that Bob's reaction to this news would be a bit of confusion, but ultimately gratitude, but Dickens wrote that he actually considered knocking Scrooge to the ground and holding him there until the authorities could put a straitjacket on him. Fortunately though, he held himself back, figured out that his boss was indeed being serious and let the old man keep his word. Scrooge went on to become a second father to Tiny Tim and in the words of Charles Dickens, he became as good a friend as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew. And the story closes with one of the most iconic quotes in literary history, God bless us, everyone. I swear, if you made it through that whole story and didn't feel yourself welling up at least a little bit, you have no soul. Or maybe you're just not as emotionally fragile as I am. Whatever the case may be, I do hope you enjoyed it because you're about to learn everything there is to know about its origins. Now to set the stage a bit. In 1842, just before Dickens started writing A Christmas Carol, he went on tour in America as part of an unsuccessful attempt to convince the legal system to enforce copyright laws for his books and put a stop to pirated copies being made. And that failure was very costly to the author. Not only was the tour itself expensive, but now he wasn't going to make the money back through legal sales of his books in the U.S. Combine that with a few of his recent works like Martin Chuzzlewit receiving bad reviews and low sales numbers, and his wife, Catherine being pregnant with their fifth child, Dickens was having a bit of a cash flow problem. In fact, his sales were so bad and money was so tight that his publishers decreased his monthly pay and he had to borrow money against his insurance policy. So by the end of 1843, boy was feeling a bit desperate for inspiration, but fortunately for him, it struck like lightning after reading some parliament papers about child labor. The document featured thousands of pages of oral testimony from kids as young as five years old who worked in factories and coal mines, and their struggle really resonated with Dickens, worked 10-hour days in a boot-blacking factory as a child after his father was sent to a debtor's prison. And to those wondering how in the hell anyone could have allowed little kids to work in such dangerous environments, there is a very sad explanation. For one, the Industrial Revolution led to swarms of people moving into urban areas like Manchester in hopes that they could get a job in a factory somewhere, and this naturally led to overcrowding and unemployment skyrocketing. Parents who couldn't get jobs and were desperate for money had two choices. turn to a life of crime and steal what you need to survive, or send your children to work in the factories and mines doing jobs that usually entailed hard manual labor and squeezing into small spaces. The real tragedy about this, though, is that thanks to the poor laws, no matter what choice you made, your fate was probably the same. You'd either go to a filthy old workhouse where you'd work a shitty job in exchange for substandard room and board, or you'd go to jail as a result of your debt or other crime and be forced to do hard manual labor anyway. For example, some Victorian prisons featured the very first treadmills, which prisoners were forced to walk on to generate electricity for grain mills and water pumps. Dickens wanted to expose these laws and the privileged people who supported them for what they were. There was a specific economist named Thomas Robert Malthus who really got under the author's skin because he argued that suffering and poverty was just unavoidable for some as the population was destined to outgrow the food supply. The douche nozzle even wrote a pamphlet called The Crisis where he argued that any man who couldn't take care of himself had no right to live or participate in developing society. Hey, does that line of thought remind you of anyone else? Because it should. It was rich like this guy who were the direct inspiration for Scrooge who echoes their arguments. If you take a look at Stave 1 when he's talking to the charity guys, he even asks them, the treadmill and poor law are in full vigor then? And when they say they are, he responds, oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. I'm very glad to hear it. The character was conceived as the personification of self-interest and his journey shows him the potential repercussions of ignoring the Poor, with an emphasis on children, who are represented by the allegorical figures of ignorance and want. These two characters, alongside Tiny Tim and his family, arouse sympathy in readers by giving names and faces to the victims of the harmful policies I mentioned earlier, therefore making it harder to just shrug them off. Because at the end of the day, they're not just characters. There were and still are people in this world experiencing the very same struggles as the Cratchits and those scary little kids. So now that you know Dickens' motivation for writing A Christmas Carol, you've got to hear about the insanity that was the composition and publication process. Because while those parliament papers about child labor lit a fire under his butt, Dickens wasn't immediately inspired to write a whole book about it. No, what actually happened is in October of 1843, he attended a charity event and gave a speech in which he vocalized his opinions on these laws. But after the event, which was set in Manchester, the nucleus of England's industrial revolution, he went for a little walk and started to contemplate how much good a single speech could actually do. After all, he wasn't able to convince all the bureaucrats and wealthy elite to see things his way, and the ones he did convince would all have to be rallied together if they wanted any hope of enacting change. With this in mind, he decided the best way to convey his message would be through a medium that everyone can enjoy, a good story. So with a deadline that was only six weeks away, your boy wrote like a madman, but the story itself wasn't the only thing he had to worry about. With such an important message, he needed this book to be read by as many people as possible. And that meant it had to look beautiful on the shelf, because while we all know we're not supposed to, we can't help but judge a book by its cover. The problem here was that to make a book look beautiful, a lot of money had to be invested, and due to his recent works all being flops, his publishers didn't feel confident enough to cover the cost. So what did Dickens do? He paid for it himself, despite knowing how much profit he was going to lose. This was not a cheap process, mind you, and the costs were further amplified by a few problems that occurred along the way. For example, the first printing had ugly olive end papers that Dickens hated the sight of, but after they were changed to yellow, they clashed with the title page, and that had to be redone. The final product truly was stunning though, bound in red cloth with pages that shined gold on the edges, featuring hand-painted illustrations by the famous artist, John Leach. Man, after putting that much time, effort, and money into how it looked, Dickens would probably be pretty pissed to see my copy. Pretty sure I spilled soup on this at one point. Yeah, definitely spilled soup on this at one point. Chicken noodle. Anyway, this part probably won't be much of a surprise to you, but A Christmas Carol's message really resonated with Londoners of all economic backgrounds. And after being published on December 19, 1843, the book was an instant bestseller. Not only did it sell out within the first week, but it went through 13 print cycles by the end of the next year, selling out every time. But if you thought that meant Dickens was rolling in the cash now, you're gonna be sorely disappointed. Between the expensive publishing costs and the low price the book had to be sold at to be sure it was accessible to everyone, he only made a about a fifth of the profit that he otherwise would have. Well, it was those factors and the fact that copyright laws were weak as hell back then, so other publishers were selling pirated copies of their own and theater troops were performing the story on stage for money that Dickens didn't get a cut of. Now, I don't wanna put too much emphasis on the profit aspect because the book was written with the purpose of making change, not money. It just sucks when someone who has truly good intentions when making a product ends up screwed. So when it comes to the impact A Christmas Carol had on England's treatment of the poor, that's pretty hard to gauge. I read in multiple reviews that after being released, charitable giving skyrocketed across the country, but I couldn't find any actual data to back that up. Then again, I don't really know where to look for something like that, so I can't say it's not true. What I can tell you is that the poor laws Dickens so heavily opposed stayed in effect for another few decades until third-party institutions were made to support families in the 1870s. From that point onward, the system was only used here and there until finally being abolished in 1948, over 100 years after it was introduced. So unfortunately, Dickens may not have had quite the impact he wanted to on the legal system and parliament fat cats. But what he did do is reinvent Christmas spirit. You see, from the middle ages onward, Christmas was heavily associated with the birth of Christ. And because the church apparently doesn't know how to party, it was thought of as a solemn religious holiday. And by the 1800s, was not really something that was celebrated. Everyone would still get the day Off, which was most necessary given the working conditions that we talked about, but families weren't getting together to play games and exchange gifts. However, the holiday started taking a new shape after Queen Victoria took the throne because in 1840, her husband Prince Albert brought over the German custom of decorating a Christmas tree. And after the public found out about it, they partook in the tradition too. But while this provided the spark that reignited Christmas spirit, Dickens poured on the gasoline. After his book was published, Christmas caroling made a comeback and was suddenly a staple activity for that time of year. And the holiday became less of a religious event and more of a familial celebration with parents, children, cousins, and grandparents coming together every year to exchange gifts and good tidings. Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom-made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first.